Well, uh, thank you all for coming. We're going to get started. Uh, my name is John Maniscalco. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. And uh, we're very excited today to announce um, the creation of our Monetary Center. And uh, this is certainly an idea whose time has come. Uh, the House, as you most likely know, passed an audit the, fill, uh, audit the Fed bill uh, last year, and that effort is growing, especially with prominent members such as Kevin Brady and Jim Hensarling eager to take a closer look at the Fed. And when the Federal Reserve was created in uh, 1913, it was with the express purpose of providing for a, mon a stable monetary and financial system. But the boom and bust cycles did not end. Uh, as you know, uh, the Great Depression, the Great Inflation, and the panic of uh, 2008, which we are just barely getting out of now, uh, are serious reminders that the Fed has failed in its original mission. Yet despite this record, and as government has a tendency to do, uh, regulation uh, by the Fed of the economy has expanded. And after a century of its existence, it's finally time to judge the Federal Reserve's history and evaluate alternatives to central banking. Uh, to that end, uh, the Cato Institute has established the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, which will focus on the development of policy recommendations to create a more free market monetary system. And to discuss uh, our efforts further, we have a distinguished panel, which I'll introduce now. First up will be John Allison, who is the president and CEO of the Cato Institute. Uh, prior to joining Cato, uh, Mr. Allison was the chairman and CEO of the BB&T Corporation. He's also the author of The Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure, Why Pure Capitalism is the, world's, is the World Economy's Only Hope. In addition, he's the former distinguished professor of practice at uh, Wake Forest University School of Business and serves on the board of visitors at the Business School at Wake Forest, Duke, and UNC Chapel Hill. He's a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and he received his master's degree in management from Duke University and is also a graduate of the Stonier Graduate School of Banking. Uh, after him will be Jim Dorn, who is our Vice President for Monetary Studies. He also edits the Cato Journal. He's a senior fellow and director of Cato's annual monetary conference. Uh, he's written extensively on the Federal Reserve monetary policy and is an expert on China's economic liber liberalization. His articles have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, South China Morning Post, and Forbes.com. From 1984 to 1990, he served on the White House Commission on Presidential Scholars, and he holds a PhD in economics from the University of Virginia. Finally, we have Mark Calabria, who is our Director for Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, before joining Cato, he spent six years as a member of the senior professional staff of the U.S. Senate <coughs> Committee on Banking and uh, prior to his service on Capitol Hill, he served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Regulatory Affairs at HUD. Uh, and he holds a doctorate in economics from George Mason University. And with that, I'll turn it over to Mr. Allison. Thanks, John, and thanks all of you for being here today. I, I, I think this is an important event. Uh, we have uh, created this, a center for the purpose of examining Fed policy objectively using academically credible research. Uh, I believe it is the first serious challenge to the Fed uh, in its hundred years in terms of the quality and quantity of people involved in this process. There have been random people that have asked questions, politicians that have asked questions, but there's been no real systematic examination of Fed policies and their Im implications. Um, one of the things that happens with the Federal Reserve. It is seen as an incredibly complex institution. 
which superficially it is, but part of their goal is to make it seem complex to confuse you. <laughs> because if you actually understood some of the things they were doing, I don't think a lot of people would be happy with them. Um, they also hire about 85% of the monetary economists in the United States. If you want to control the dialogue, control all the people that have dialogue in that field. They have vast financial resources, so they run their own, call it propaganda, communications uh, system. The Fed is an incredibly powerful institution. They control money, and they, and they have the world's reserve currency. There's probably, in effect, no more powerful institution in the world. And, and it's an institution of which there is really no true discipline. Uh, Congress is disciplined uh, by, uh, uh, by elections, by, by, by the president, by, by the by the uh, courts, the same thing the president's discipline. But the Fed theoretically reports to Congress, but practically, certainly in my 40-year career, Congress has never really done anything to discipline the Fed. It's, it, it's a independent in a almost dangerous sense in terms of the authority and power that it has. Um, what we've done, if you'll take a look at the press release, we've put together a, an incredibly impressive group of academic scholars and business leaders uh, uh, including two Nobel laureates, including probably uh, the vast majority of academically credible uh, scholars that have over the years written about monetary, uh, monetary policy. It is a truly outstanding group. Um, what is um, common among this group is a concern about an undisciplined Fed, and particularly how the Fed has evolved both during and after the recent financial crisis of 2007-2009. And it has moved into very uh, new territory, very uh, unknown implications of its policies. Um, these are not gold bugs. Uh, some of us believe in gold standards, but this is not a gold bug group. Uh, the group has a variety of different situations, of positions. A number of our scholars are very interested in some kind of uh, method for disciplining the Fed, some kind of rule the Taylor rule, the Friedman rule, uh, the, the idea of a GDP rule. Some of our scholars and, and some of our business supporters are very interested in the idea of an alternative to government fiat money. Maybe or maybe not a Bitcoin, but the idea that there needs to be some discipline imposed through the market. Uh, if you look at what happened with the post office through FedEx and, and, U, and uh, UPS, it created change in the post office, and, and we hope we can develop alternative currencies in a method that it, the minimum, maybe the Fed continues to exist, fiat currency continues to exist, but the market disciplines uh, the Fed in a different way than it's been disciplined in the past. There's certainly among our group advocates of what's called constitutional money, uh, based on the rules the Founding Fathers outlined, and, and some of us, including me, are advocates of free banking, uh, based on the history of free banking, which has been incredibly successful uh, looking back to the past. However, this group is not looking back to the past. We realize that we don't, can't, we don't expect to go back to the past. We're looking to the future, what we've learned, and how we can create a better system that produces better outcomes. Um, we're also focused on the regulatory side, and we look at them both because they're obviously implemented together. We believe that regulatory concerns have often caused the Fed to make mistakes in terms of monetary policy. From the banking business, I know that a number of quote, monetary policy decisions were made because the Fed was a regulator of large financial institutions and they didn't want to look bad if those institutions got in trouble. Uh, actions that they may not have taken if they didn't have that regulatory responsibility. 
And of course, Dodd-Frank has, has raised the, uh, uh, the issue of, of regulations. It's a massive, complex regulation that's very amb ambiguous uh, and very uh, uh, expensive for, for financial organizations to implement. It's had a huge impact in terms of of reducing innovation and creativity in the financial services industry, where the U.S. used to be by far uh, the world's leader. Uh, from personal background, it has very uh, much been damaging, although not its intent, to small business lending. I, was, I grew up in the banking business as a small business lender. Small business lending is part art and part science. It's really venture capital investing on a small scale that, that's too small for capital markets. And what the Fed has done is created a very mathematical set of formulas so that you can't make the kind of judgments that are necessary for small business lending. I happen to have been fortunate to put a number of small businesses in business that have created thousands of jobs. And the kind of loans that I was making, which were venture capital loans, you could not make, you cannot make today. So it's been very destructive of small business lending. Um, we think, too, that what's happened is the Fed has evolved with both this regulatory and monetary focus, even though it's not in its charter, it seems like its primary goal is to finance the government at the lowest interest rate it can for the government at the expense of the private market and proving, pulling resources out of private capital formation into government resources, which is not productive. I want to kind of a personal comment. I, as uh, John mentioned earlier, I wrote a book called The Financial Crisis and the Free Market cure and uh, as the longest serving CEO of a major financial institution in the U.S. and I was CEO of EB&T for 20 years and during that period we grew from four and a half billion dollars to 152 billion dollars and we didn't during the financial crisis we didn't have a single quarterly loss so we did very well and and I think I had a special inside uh, perspective and that inside perspective what it taught me is that the, there's been a myth created and the myth is that the financial crisis the recent financial crisis was caused by deregulation in the banking industry well, the banking industry wasn't deregulated. We had <clears throat> Sarbanes-Oxley, the Patriot Act, and the Privacy Act, three major laws passed under the Bush administration. We were not deregulated, we were misregulated. I strongly believe that government policy caused the financial crisis, a combination of errors by the Federal Reserve and government housing policy, specifically Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. But those housing policy errors were not possible if the Fed hadn't made monetary policy errors. Um, and it's interesting to reflect on this fact. And one of the things we want to do is get economic history right. People really have a lot of misunderstanding of what's happened in monetary systems and the relative performance since the Fed was created. In fact, the relative performance in the United States in terms of real growth and volatility has been much worse since the Fed was created than before it was created. There's myths about that, what actually happened. The Fed itself will admit it was a primary cause of the Great Depression. Uh, Bernanke admitted that. Now, they admitted it 50 years after the Depression happened. Uh, they will admit they were the primary cause, and a few of you, I don't know if anybody in my age group in here, of the 70s, the inflationary bubble we had that resulted uh, in the early 80s in a very severe, severe economic correction. And the Fed, after about 30 years, admitted they caused those kind of corrections. I argue in 30 or 40 years, they'll admit they caused the 2007, 2009 recession. But it'll take them another 30 or 40 years. Um, the, uh, my own observation of having been in the business the long term, I would call the Fed like a fireman who goes around unintentionally but effectively starts fires. And then when the city starts burning down, they put the fire out and everybody considers him a hero. And they blame somebody else for starting the fire. 
And then they start another fire, uh, which you can argue they're doing right now. And then they're going to blame somebody else when the fire gets put out. It's a very interesting process that they've put together. Um, the uh, couple thoughts. Uh, one is one of the things we want to look at is opportunity costs. Could our economic system have performed better with a different monetary model? And we strongly believe it could have. We strongly, and people say, well, the Fed worked, well, not really. <laughs> uh, uh, are there better alternatives? Are there better solutions? Secondly, I believe, this is not necessarily all of our scholars, I believe the Fed's, what the Fed tries to do is impossible. There's a long set of economic history showing that price fixing does not work. It never works. And uh, I've had this experience talking to a number of members, fairly large number of members of the Federal, uh, the Fed's Open Market Committee over the years and asked them a question. Do you believe that uh, you could set the price of an automobile without a market information? You just set the price of the automobile. You get a group of elitist people in D.C. and they decide that automobile ought to be priced X. To a person, they'll all say, absolutely not. You couldn't possibly set the right price for an automobile. And then my follow-up question is, how can you possibly then set the right interest rate? An interest rate is a far more complex price and a far more important price. How do a group of leaders in Washington, D.C. know how to set the right interest rate? And not a single one of them has answered that question. I think they do a lot better job setting the price of automobiles than they've done setting the price of interest rate. I think that's a complex question. One last thought that maybe energized uh, my interest in this the Fed has been in the process uh, of a massive redistribution of wealth, uh, particularly since the financial crisis started. They've been holding interest rates by their own admission below what market rates are. What that has done is punished middle class, uh, modest income savers uh, for the benefit of people that are wealthy. Uh, I, I see that in the banking business. There are tons of millions of customers in the banking business that are retired. Um, husband and wife retired, they saved a little money, they put it in CDs because they really couldn't, you know, they didn't have enough money to take a lot of risk. They're getting a below market interest rate on their CD, so they're having to spend their principal when they could have lived on their interest. At the same time, the stock market, people like me that are in the stock market are wealthy, we're getting huge incentive because the PEA shows are being incented by low interest rate. So it's ironic, I don't know how many liberals we have in here, that liberals and progressives think the Fed's policies are a good idea when they're part of this redistribution effort that's going on. It's hurting moderate income people and helping wealthy people. And you don't want an institution to be doing that, particularly one in which is fundamentally undisciplined, an undisciplined institution. So those are the fundamental reasons why we have created this center. I think it's going to be the most effective voice ever to challenge the Fed, uh, and to, in that least, at the minimum, it'll force them to be more disciplined in their own thinking. All right, thank you very much, and I want to introduce Jim Dorn. Jim? Thanks, John. Uh, thanks for coming here today. Well, the, when John introduced me, he mentioned that I have done a lot of work in China, and that's true. And one thing I've criticized uh, the China uh, Central Bank for doing is uh, engaging in what we call financial repression. Uh, they control interest rates. They hold rates very low so that you have negative real returns. They also f fleece their savers, as we're doing. So the financial repression has basically evolved in the United States. Uh, so it's not just China that engages in financial repression. So does the Fed. 
And Cato's voice will be heard on this, as, as John Allison said. Uh, there's a need for uh, in, an institution in Washington that uh, criticizes the Fed and thinks about alternatives because I'd like to go back to the constitutional issues. If, if you read the Constitution, this is the Cato Little Pocket Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, uh, which I would imagine everyone here is familiar with, at least I hope so. Uh, one of the powers that the Constitution gave Congress was to regulate the value of money. And that didn't mean control the value of money as such, like the Fed tries to do. Uh, it meant to make regular the value of money. And of course, they were under a com commodity standard at that time, and the gold standard did regulate the value of money over time. The price level was about the same 100 years uh, after, uh, if you take any point, look at 100 years beyond that uh, pre-World War I, uh, the price level hadn't changed much. Uh, but since the Fed took over, and particularly since the gold window closed in 71 with Nixon, uh, the price level has drifted upward predictably uh, upward. And now the Fed is arguing for a 2% inflation target. In fact, they would like, some people would like a higher inflation target, including Ken Rogoff at Harvard, who's argued maybe it should be 4%. Uh, well, if we have a 2% inflation target, that means that the real value of money depreciates by 2% per year. So in 35 years, the value of a dollar is, is cut in half. So that's not a very good policy uh, in, my, in my opinion. In doing some research a couple weeks ago, I came across a very interesting article that uh, Milton Friedman, actually it wasn't an article, he, he gave some testimony before Congress, and it was republished in the old Republican Research uh, Committee's a, a little pamphlet, and uh, that was back in 1984. That committee's uh, been dissolved since, since then. But I had uh, read that paper, and I was very interested in it, so I republished it in the latest Cato Journal with permission of Friedman's family, and it's called Monetary Policy Structures, and it's a, it's a great article to read, especially for people that are working uh, uh, in Congress. And let me just quote here briefly, the question that the members of Congress put to Friedman was, Professor, if, if we could freeze high-powered money, high-powered money means the currency in circulation plus the reserves at the central bank. If, if we could freeze high-powered money, what reduces the uncertainty that people have about the monetary base, which is the same as high-powered money, uh, that the Fed will be consistent? That was the question put to Friedman. Friedman answered, there wouldn't be a Fed. Uh, what do you need a Fed for? And uh, the question then became, what about the Treasury Department uh, changing the numbers for the monetary base? In other words, manipulating the base. And Friedman answered, as I said, my preference would be to have a constitutional amendment. After all, that's what the original Constitution does. We have forgotten that the original Congress prohibited states from emitting bills of credit and gave Congress only the power, quote, to coin money, regulate the value thereof, and a foreign coin, close quote. As I read the original Constitution, it intended to limit Congress to a commodity standard. Well, maybe we can't go back to a commodity standard, but we can certainly do better than what we have now. And at Cato, we've been looking at this for quite some time, and now we're going to really power up our efforts with this new center. And 
The first book coming out, which will be out in January, is a book on renewing the search for a monetary constitution, means a rules-based monetary regime, and reforming the government's role in the monetary system. And this, this is an edited volume by Larry White uh, and uh, Victor Vanberg and uh, Erhard uh, Kohler, Kohler, which will be out uh, by the Cato Institute Press in January. So the Fed's power needs to be limited and Congress has to recognize and recapture its responsibility for sound money. Uh, by delegating it to the Fed, the Fed, you know, the Fed caused the Great Depression. Everybody agrees on that, even uh, Ben Bernanke said that. And the latest financial uh, recession, the Great Recession, as John Allison pointed out, was due to government failure. In part, the Fed, by holding interest rates too low for too long, helped uh, fuel the, the housing bubble. Uh, so I think Congress has to really face that fact. And I'm glad to say that Representative Kevin Brady, who we held a Hill conference with uh, last, well, about six months ago, uh, has proposed a bipartisan uh, uh, commission to have a centennial monetary commission to re-examine the Fed's history and to think about alternatives. He's not saying which alternative is better, and neither is Cato, uh, but we should examine this carefully. Uh, that's the least Congress could do. Now, as, as John Allison pointed out, Cato's new center will examine alternatives to the present system. The present system is a system of pure discretionary government fiat money. Uh, and we've never had a system like that before. Uh, ever since the Fed started, well, the Fed initially wasn't as, as powerful as it is today. But after 71, we have now a purely fiat money system and pure discretion. There's no rule at all. And that leads to a lot of uncertainty. It leads to a lack of transparency. And the myth is, is that the Fed is independent. Well, it is independent to a certain extent, but everybody knows it's a political organization because it's obviously, what's it doing? It's, it's not engaging in pure monetary policy. The monetary base has expanded dramatically, but the money supply hasn't gone up that much. And that's why we haven't got a lot of inflation yet. But we have seen asset price inflation because of the ultra low interest rates uh, brought about by Fed policy. Uh, so we need to take a, a close look at the discretion that the Fed has and the power that the Fed has, has acquired and ask ourselves, uh, can't, we, can't we do better? Now the Cato Monetary Conference, which uh, actually I've been organizing since I was a teenager. Uh, <laughs> so uh, this is the 32nd year and uh, it's alternatives to central banking which seems like kind of a radical title for anybody in Washington, uh, uh, toward free market money. But we've got a very distinguished uh, group of people speaking there, and, and, and the papers that I've received, which will be distributed at the conference, are very scholarly. That's Cato's uh, trademark. We do very scholarly research. Um, now, I have a few, just take a second, a minute on this. Myths versus realities. There's lots of myths out there about the Federal Reserve. Uh, we do our best, best to try to dispel some of those myths, but let me just give you a, a couple of these myths. Uh, 
and I'm not going to try to spell them all right now. We don't have time. But myth number one, the Fed can stimulate the real economy by monetary measures. Well, we learn in our principles economics class that you can't push out the production possibility capability of the society by printing money. But yet, that's, that seems to be the mindset these days. All we need is more monetary stimulus so we get real economic growth. Even David Hume knew long ago that uh, pumping up the money supply does not create real economic growth. You need to have institutional changes, you need lower marginal tax rates, and you need incentives for people to uh, work and save and invest. As John Allison pointed out, the Fed is doing just the opposite. It's distorting interest rates, which uh, really uh, throw a monkey wrench into the capital markets. It's misallocating credit by favoring uh, politicizing credit allocation by uh, quantitative easing, holding massive amounts of mortgage-backed securities, financing the government deficits at very low interest rates, which encourages uh, government to be bigger than it otherwise would be. Under the gold standard, uh, there was a fiscal constraint. Uh, under the fiat standard, there's basically no constraint. Uh, Another fallacy is that the Fed can somehow uh, permanently, or at least for a long time, increase asset prices by artificially lowering interest rates. Well, there's no question they have stimulated the stock market, even though Ben Bernanke doesn't believe that. Uh, certainly participants in the market know when you can't get yield on, on any kind of money uh, market uh, uh, instrument, you go and take more risk. And look at the junk bond market. It's thrived under this. So that's not the way to conduct the, the purpose of monetary policy shouldn't be to increase risk taking. It should be to protect the value of money, our property right in a sound currency over a long period of time. Under the gold standard, for example, governments, uh, Br Britain ins issued what they called consuls. They were uh, instruments that were into perpetuity. They had an infinite life for their bonds. Who would, uh, you know, who would issue those today? So you had a reversion effect under the gold standard where they knew that the prices, if they went up in the short term, because maybe gold discoveries or something like that, in the long run, they would go back down again. But we don't have that guarantee, that credibility today. Another uh, myth is that the Fed can consistently pursue its dual mandate of full employment and price stability. Well, we know that's not the case. First of all, the Fed cannot uh, control real variables, it should have a single mandate uh, being price stability if it has a mandate at all. And uh, by having the two, as soon as unemployment goes up, they start to use the monetary machinery to try to reduce unemployment. Uh, but the economics literature knows, uh, has shown us that there's no permanent trade-off between inflation and unemployment. In fact, even in the short run, you don't get much of a trade-off because of rational expectations and so on. But they pretty much have ignored that, and they build that into their models. And of course, the stagflation of the 70s showed us that high unemployment and high inflation can go together, something that uh, Frederick Hayek told us a long time ago. Um, just one other, other, I have a bunch of them here, but I'm not going to take any more time on it. But um, another myth is that the Fed is engaging in easy money. Now, everybody would think that because the monetary base has grown enormously. But it's fallacious just to look at interest rates, low interest rates. Okay, we have inflation in asset prices, I'm pretty convinced of that in bonds and stocks. Uh, but if you look at money supply growth, uh, money supply growth has, has not been uh, uh, abnormally high. 
be, and because what the Fed is doing is it started in October 2008 to pay interest on excess reserves. The first time it's ever done that. And when you can look at a chart and see that the explosion of excess reserves after 2008 just went through the roof. Uh, and that was at the same time they also started paying interest on excess reserves. You want those reserves lent out to get into the money supply stream and affect nominal incomes and spending. Uh, but that's not happening. Uh, so the Fed, while saying one thing, is doing just the opposite. It really hasn't explained why. The money, money, money multiplier, for example, is at a historic low. The other thing, deflation is bad. Inflation, at least mild inflation, is good. We've heard that a lot. Well, during the, during the gold standard, again, we had real economic growth. We had mildly decreasing prices, deflation. Wasn't bad at all. We had prosperity. If we have monetary deflation like we had during the Great Depression when the Fed cut the money supply by a third, that's bad. Uh, so we should get rid of that uh, thought that mild deflation caused by economic growth is bad. It's not. What we need is economic growth. Okay, some questions that the center will be asking people at the center and are some of our scholars uh, in the near future. Uh, what's the Fed's exit strategy? It hasn't been well explained. Uh, what's the future of the dollar as a reserve currency? How has the Fed's credit allocation and ultra-low rates affected the allocation of capital and new investment? And of course, uh, as John Allison meant, uh, mentioned, the effect of the Fed's policy on savers, which should be evident to everyone. So let me just conclude that, again, thank you for coming today. and. Um, I, I hope that the people that work with Congress will recognize the limits of monetary policy and the constitutional responsibility of Congress to protect our property right in a sound currency. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. Um, well, my colleagues have talked a lot about the Federal Reserve, so I want to make sure that uh, just in case the OCC and the SEC and the FHFA and CFPB and CFTC are listening, you're not off the hook either. Uh, in fact, these guys might have the easy part. They're just going to be watching one agency. I've got like a dozen or so that I've got to keep track of and keep an eye on. Uh, but first, let me you know, emphasize um, the, the, the natural question might arise. I mean, why exactly is the center we, we combine financial regulation and monetary policy? Uh, and to me, I think the two are, are intimately related. Uh, what you do on the financial regulatory side, whether it's capital standards or, you know, very much influences monetary outcomes. Uh, and of course, as we've repeatedly seen in financial crises, whether it's the SNL crisis or whether it's the most recent crisis, is your bank regulation is only ever going to be as good as your monetary policy. And in fact, one of the lessons I think we've learned is almost no uh, extent of financial regulation is going to save you if your monetary policy is misguided. Uh, and harmful. So for us, uh, there really are two big parts of this, and, and I will emphasize again, while the Fed, of course, has a very large uh, regulatory role, and one of the things we will be advocating is relieving them of that role, uh, and certainly, if we can't get rid of it completely, a uh, uh, second best is to transfer those authorities uh, to other regulators. Um, but again, uh, it's also worth keeping in mind the Fed itself was formed partly to be a lender of last resort for problems uh, in the financial sector. 
Uh, one of the things that I have always thought that, and one of the things attracted me to coming to Cato was I think Cato always steps back and says, let's take the big picture first. Let's think about the general principles uh, before we talk about specific situations. Uh, and we will be doing this in the financial area as well. You know, we really will start out with uh, what is the problem that financial regulation is trying to solve? Uh, and to me, Part of the problem we have today in financial regulation, it is a combination of government-provided safety nets that create moral hazard. And of course, when you've got moral hazard, the government often comes in and creates market power. So they call it banking franchise value. Uh, so you won't gamble it away. Uh, but of course, if we create monopoly power, market power, and franchise value, uh, that leaves a lot of what we would, what economists call excess rents, monopoly rents. Uh, and unfortunately, um, it's very difficult for politicians to leave those monopoly rents alone, which of course leads to the redistribution you often see in the system, which often leads to the instability. Uh, also note as well, we're not only going to be looking at the regulators, but we will certainly be very keeping, keeping a very close eye on when anybody in the banking industry comes to Washington and says, would you please use taxpayer dollars to cover up my mistakes? That is something we will continue to be very aggressive about. Uh, I personally do believe too big to fail is real. It is a real issue and needs to be at the top of our agenda uh, attacking. But it also needs to be carefully explained. What exactly is it? Why do we have too big to fail? What does it arise from? Uh, my opinion is it's more political than economic, and we need to take that approach to ending it. Um, so while a lot of our immediate focus will be on Dodd-Frank, we'll be, you know, we will continue to talk about some of the problems of the FSOC. Uh, you know, to me, the insanity of thinking we can label institutions as systemically important and somehow the market's not going to figure out that that's synonymous for too big to fail. Uh, we will continue to push other options, such as a bankruptcy option, instead of having uh, regulators resolve these institutions, so we can try to get a little more of the politics out of the question. So we will continue uh, on those efforts. Uh, we will actually expand those efforts while at the same time trying to educate, trying to analyze the bigger picture questions. So let me mention a couple of themes that we will focus on that we think are very big. Uh, the first, to me, immediately following everything else before preceding everything else is rolling back the bank safety net. I'm the first one to say that if you create a safety net, whether it's FDIC, uh, whether it's the Federal Reserve's lender of last resort function, you create moral hazard. You encourage risk taking. And of course, uh, moral hazard is inherent both in private and public insurance. You always have to kind of find ways to do that. So to the extent that you need to create regulation to control the risk taking that you've created from the safety net, that's absolutely appropriate. You can't get, and I think this is where many of my libertarian friends have gone wrong in the past. You have to make sure that when you pull back the regulations, you pull back the safety net and you pull back the moral hazard that is created at the same time. Because the last thing we want is a guarantee with no oversight. Uh, no market oversight, no government oversight, but again, we have to recognize that the problems come from the guarantee to begin with. Uh, so many things such as FDIC, um, whether it's the Federal Reserve's 13-3 power, and you know, and this is where we will look for friends where we can. I'm happy to say and delighted that, for instance, Elizabeth Warren signed on to a letter to the Federal Reserve to say, you guys actually need to take this seriously and stop bailing out banks. I applaud that, and I certainly hope that she works with us in that regard. Um, there are other issues we will work on. There's something over at Treasury called the Exchange Stabilization Fund. Uh, you might not, you, maybe you've heard of this. It was created in 1934 to manage the dollar gold parity. You might notice we don't do that anymore. Um, but we do have a $50 billion fund that Treasury uses uh, to bail out whoever they seem to want. They even do it when Congress says no. So for instance, it's before the time of some of us, um, but the peso bailout that happened in the 90s was actually voted down by Congress. 
uh, and then a young bureaucrat over at the Treasury, a uh, guy named Tim Geithner, who, ran, who was the Deputy Undersecretary for International Affairs and ran the Exchange Stabilization Fund, came upon the ideal of, hey, we Treasury have a big amount of money here. We can bail out Wall Street's bets on Mexico. And they did. And they've consistently done that. We saw this during the financial crisis where that same fund was used uh, to rescue the mutual fund industry. Uh, what any of this has to do with managing the dollar gold parity is beyond me. But certainly it is not being used for what it should be used. Uh, and if it's not going to be used for that, it should not have a large pot of money over there. Um, once, of course, we tried it, if we are successful, and I certainly hope we are rolling back the safety net, one of the things we need in finance, and this is not just banking, is open entry, is competition. Even today, for me to open a bank, for me to get a charter to open a bank, the regulators will, the first thing the regulators will look at is, will that adversely impact the profits of other banks in that community? And if it does, you won't get your bank charter. It is a system that is explicitly set up to create local monopolies. We think this harms consumers. We think this harms competition. Again, I can say I get it when, you've, when, when, the, when the attitude is you've created the moral hazard and want to create a franchise value to control that moral hazard. But again, once we can kind of address the moral hazard, I do think we need to open entry in banking. We need greater competition in banking. We need greater competition in finance in general. And I will emphasize, you may maybe notice that the name of our center is the Center for Monetary Financial Alternatives. So we will be looking at trying to foster a variety of alternatives to the commercial banking system. And whether this is peer-to-peer -peer lending, whether this is hedge funds, whether this is private equity, uh, whether this is finance companies, anything we can look at that gives us an alternative to what the current system we have we think is incredibly important. Uh, another thing we want to end up doing uh, is ending the use of the financial system to simply redistribute income. Uh, and I think an awful lot of what we do, quite frankly, uh, what I think most of the CFPB, the consumer agency, does is try to transfer from prudent borrowers to less prudent borrowers in a way to try to have average cost pricing rather than risk-based pricing. Uh, and again, to me, you know, if you want to redistribute income, do it through the tax code, do it through the welfare system, do it honestly, do it above board. Uh, and quite frankly, we've repeatedly used the financial system as a way to hide funding, create off-budget contingent liabilities that come back and blow up in our face. And so quite frankly, I think the American public is entitled to, if you're going to put them on the hook for this, have it on budget, vote for it, do it directly. Um, don't do it through the finance system. Again, I think we end up having repeated problems in that regard. Uh, so many of the things within our, uh, within our system, uh, you know, such as the GSE housing goals and things like this, which again, my, emphasis, my point would be, I don't think that they were the first thing that caused the crisis. I think they were an important element of it. But the whole attitude that finance should be here uh, to essentially enrich one group of citizens at the expense of another, to me, is a real big problem. Uh, and so I, to emphasize that, um, you know, consumer protection is a good area, a good example of this. I don't look at the role of center. I don't look at the role of myself as taking the side of the banks or the consumers. I look at that as taking the side of let's have a fair system where people can come together fairly, honestly contract and reach agreement on their own without us, without the government coming in afterwards and rewriting that contract to favor one party or another. Whether debts are honored or not should not depend on the political strength of the groups involved. Uh, and for us, that will be a very big, uh, you know, bringing trust both to this sector, both on the consumer side as well as on the industry side. Um, again, assuming, you know, and let's hope that, again, we're very successful at rolling back this safety net, competition also has to come on the activity side. Uh, and so one of the areas I certainly see us embracing and working in is a mixing of banking and commerce. Quite frankly, for instance, I think I'd love to see Walmart do for banking what they've done for retail. 
that would be terrific for the consumer. And that's the sort of competition that I think we need in this marketplace. Uh, and so lastly, let me end with something that has you know, greatly troubled me over the years. Uh, we have a number of colleagues at Cato who you may be aware do terrific work. My friends Jim Harper and Julian Sanchez who, who monitor the monitors and try to keep NSA uh, and utter these activities in line. And so when the NSA scandals first broke, my response was, where have you been? The banks have been spying on you at the behest of the government for decades. Um, and so John mentioned the Patriot Act, and you know, um, a third of the Patriot Act by length of text is banking. Uh, and so, and you look at our response to uh, addressing the issues with Russia and Ukraine, it's all been banking. Uh, so one of the issues that we will address is not just banking as foreign policy, but banking as policemen. Um, you are monitored much of your own activity through what you do in the banking system. You know, this might also be before the time, but um, you might remember, uh, for those of you old enough, when the Monica Lewinsky scandal first broke and they found out what books she had bought, they went through her credit card accounts. Uh, you know, and again, because the financial regulators have this ability uh, to monitor the financial system, to monitor your transaction, every, everything you do with a payment card, a regulator could eventually get access to. Uh, and so, you know, John mentioned Bitcoin, alternative currencies. Quite frankly, one of the reasons I'm excited about it uh, is I'm less uh, excited about it being a stable store of value, which it certainly has the potential to be, but I see these other currencies as a way to go around the government-monitored and surveilled payment system that you and I can be able to transact directly without having every detail of our transactions uh, monitored. And so I'll also leave with, um, it's been bad enough in my opinion that Congress and the Bank Secrecy Act and the Patriot Act and many of these things ha have enlisted the banks to spy on us, which quite frankly I'll say as an aside, I think this reinforces too big to fail. Uh, you, one of the things that was struck in, uh, recently, about a year ago, one of the Bush uh, administration treasury guys came out with a book called Treasury's War and walks you through uh, all of the efforts that they made to use terror financing. And the thing that, one of the things that kept striking me in the book is repeatedly you know, mention of this bank or that bank being a good partner and a good player. So, you know, if, who do you think Treasury's going to bail out first? The people who are its good partners and good players. Uh, and we've seen this most recently with the DOJ's Operation Chokehold, where they have basically told the banks, well, you know, we don't like you having checking accounts for ammo dealers. We don't like you having checking accounts for porn stars. We don't like you having checking accounts for payday lenders. The list has gone on where many banks have shut down the checking accounts uh, of legitimate legal businesses solely because DOJ, Eric Holder, does not approve of these businesses. This has been done without the authority of law, without any sort of administrative procedure, all in back rooms. And why are they able to do this? Because the banks go along, because the banks know who's going to decide to sue them or not, and the banks know who's going to bail them out or not. Uh, and so for me, one of our primary objectives is we will never depoliticize, we will never end too big to fail until we are able to sever this tied at the hip nature of the big banks and government. And it's got to be both. And so that will be a core part of what we're doing. Um, and again, it's a long list. Uh, maybe I can get some of my colleagues to help me with some of these other agencies beside the Fed. Uh, but we will certainly have a very long and, and, and busy agenda. With that, I'll turn it back to John.